0: I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Nealand, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey everyone, it's episode 10, and today you have both of us, Michelle and Vin.
1: Hey everyone, it's good to be on the podcast.
0: So one of the things we want to try to introduce with the podcast is talking about current events, so things that are happening in real time that relate to wildlife health. And so many of you may have seen in the news in recent weeks um, that there was an oil spill off the coast of California um, in early October 2021. So we thought with this episode it would be good to get everybody up to speed with what happened with that oil spill, where are we at, how many animals have been recovered, and then get someone on the show that's there currently working on the spill in real time and get their take on it. So, Finn, how about you fill us in on what's been going on with the spill?
1: Yeah, to give everyone a little bit of a nice uh, baseline for uh, the episode. So the oil spill off Huntington Beach, California, was confirmed on October 2nd, a day after local residents reported a petroleum smell. Originating from an offshore pipeline leak, the spill is believed to be close to 25,000 gallons, uh, but that amount is still being evaluated. Coast Guard officials confirmed it came from a leak in a pipeline owned by Houston-based Amplify Energy that moves crude oil from offshore platforms. The cause of the leak remains under investigation, but was likely caused by a ship's anchor damaging the pipeline in the months or even up to a year before the spill occurred. Response teams are searching for tar balls washing ashore along more than 70 miles of coastline in Orange and San Diego counties, but the majority of this oil has washed ashore in the Huntington Beach area. At particular risk is Talbert Marsh, a roughly 25-acre coastal ecological reserve that was restored for wildlife and flood control. While the impact of the spill is still being assessed, as of October 21st, 2021, the Oiled Wildlife Care Network is reporting 32 birds recovered alive, 76 birds recovered dead, as well as one marine mammal recovered alive, and five recovered dead. Fortunately, some of the live birds have already been released. So yeah, it's... uh, not as disastrous of an oil spell as initially feared with some estimates upwards of 150,000 gallons, um, but still a pretty significant uh, impact um, to local wildlife.
0: Mm, yeah. But in some ways, the the I don't want to say the timing was good, but there were some benefits to the fact that it Happened at this particular time period,
1: right? So it's like post breeding season um, sort of the right good time for for uh, Migrants not really being in great numbers and certainly uh, before most wintering birds had arrived to the area. So really fortunate on that front It could have been much much more disastrous
0: Mm, Yeah So we're recording this podcast from the East Coast but the two wildlife organizations over in California who are currently involved in responding to this spill are the Oiled Wildlife Care Network and International Bird Rescue. So for today's episode, we were able to chat with Dr. Rebecca Dewar of International Bird Rescue to get her take on what's going on currently with the spill and just to talk about in general how oil spill response works, how do we actually rehab animals that are recovered during a spill and some of the interesting cases that she's seen in her work.
1: Yeah. And so let's jump right in with Rebecca.
2: My name is Rebecca Dewar and I'm the clinical veterinarian. Um, My actual title is director of research and veterinary science at international bird rescue and um, International Bird Rescue is an organization that's been primarily focused on the rehabilitation of aquatic birds for the last 50 years. So this, this actually is our 50th anniversary year, um, but we're um, the organization is well known for dealing with oil spills. Um, in recent history we deal with tons and tons of fishing line injuries and other environmental issues going on in uh, coastal California.
1: Yeah, IVR carries a really strong reputation. We really love all the work that you do, and um, yeah, especially right now with an active spill. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the first question is sort of a simple and easy, hopefully easy, two-part question. Um, when you have an oil spill like this, um, could you outline sort of what IBR's involvement is with the spill response? Um, and maybe after that, or tied in, what your specific role is um, in the spill response and oiled wildlife, um, the care of oiled wildlife.
2: Sure. So International Bird Rescue, as I mentioned, has been around for 50 years starting this year um, and has responded all over the world to more than 200 oil spills over the decades. Um, so, so that started in the 70s. And then in the 90s in California, the Oil Wildlife Care Network came into existence and part of the reason for that was that there there was so many spills going on all the time, like multiple events happening at the same time. Um, and uh, California ended up with this fabulous um, system called the Oil Bomber Care Network. So it's a, a, a network of more than 50 organizations um, that all contribute uh, personnel, pre-trainings. Um, we attend events. We try to keep... Uh, a nice solid um, group of pre-trained volunteers on hand who can become staff. Um, so, so International Bird Rescue actually resides in two of the primary care facilities that have been built by the state of California as pre-existing primary care facilities during oil spills. So, we live there in both of our centers um, year-round, and we we rehabilitate oiled um, oiled individually oiled birds. Um, all the time. We, we have kind of a, several hundred of them that come in every year that don't have a, an organized spill involved. Um, we also do um, about a total of 5,000 animals a year between the two centers, strictly aquatic birds. So we're essentially a referral center for the other wildlife centers in the Los Angeles and San Francisco areas um, where they send us their water birds, like all their pelicans and cormorants and all those kind of guys And more pelagic species and uh, we deal with those Um, so let's see what else did i miss Uh,
1: (laughs) yeah when you do get um oiled birds in what is your your role in in the process
2: my role i i think wildlife rehabilitators should be able to do basic rehabilitative care of the animals and they are very skilled at it many of them have decades of experience dealing with stabilization and physical exams and my role ends up being uh, data wrangling and surgery those are my primary functions um, i have a phd in animal biology from uc davis and a um, uh, masters of preventive veterinary medicine as well so i'm i'm you know i'm a data wrangler um, and so largely i am involved in those roles. So I work very closely with our animal care staff. We have, you know, full animal care staffing and plus volunteers at both of our centers. And I end up uh, consulting on cases on a pretty much daily basis at both centers and um, travel around a lot doing surgery. (laughs) So, so, and that's, that's pretty much what I, what I enjoy doing.
0: So maybe you could also Following along that lines, take us through um, when an actual spill event happens, what is sort of the chain of events that occur that then gets IBR roped into the response?
2: Yeah, so in it depends on where the spill is. In the state of California, California Department of Fish and Wildlife has an office of spill response. And they are the ones who are out there in the field dealing with the literal spill itself, trying to boom things off. And they have a whole network of people who deal with that aspect of it. And then OWCN, so the Oil Wildlife Care Network, gets activated through them to send out teams to go uh, deal with any wildlife that might be affected. They also... Um, do hazing and other things like that to try to keep animals out of oiled areas. Um, when International Bird Rescue becomes involved, is uh, it depends on where it is and what, what the deal is, but we form a cadre of uh, primary responders for the organization. Um, so we become part of the network and essentially the state of California and UC Davis Wildlife Health Center, OWCN management, runs the, the management of the spill. So. For example, today it's pretty much all our staff actually physically taking care of animals. We've had people out doing search and collection as part of the teams that are deployed, um, but the state ends up calling the the, the shots um, during an event. Um, so we are, as part of our the organization's agreement with um, the state, et cetera, um, when we are. At When we are activated for a spill, we are expected and completely capable of having our centers ready to admit oiled animals within like an hour. Um, So it's it's uh, pretty much maintaining a steady state of readiness, and then being prepared to, like on a moment's notice, who is available and qualified to fill certain roles, um, is what happens. So we have we have kind of a, it's very much a collaborative relationship where we keep our volunteers up on all their trainings and keep them involved and keep their skills up by doing regular animal care you know, 65 days a year um, and then we are available to become staff and managers and foot soldiers during a spill
1: I'm sure you need an army to be effective in soil response.
2: depends on, you know it depends on the circumstance and the geography that's affected. you know during Costco Basin and San Francisco Bay, you know all those those little nooks and crannies of San Francisco Bay were oiled, and there's oiled animals everywhere. and it's um, its it it can be pretty intensive, just collecting animals before they die. Mm-hmm. yeah, so and this, we know from previous experience that the the faster you rescue them, the better shape they're in.
1: So, you know, when, when a lot of folks think about um oiled wildlife and and how you uh, rehab and recover oiled wildlife, they often think of, you know, a wet duck and dawn soap and um it seems like a you know pretty, you know, friendly process and oh it's like yeah, just you know, it's so get easy. at it. It's so easy. Yeah, you them, know, right? and it's yeah, they're we know just dirty. That, yeah. <laughs> right, it's just dirty. Yeah, just get that dirty oil off. It was yeah. some Dawn soap. Um but we know that it's not that, that simple. It's not that easy. Um, Can you sort of, you know, take us through and that, that process sort of outline this, this sort of the steps and, you know, starting with even just the triaging and then, and then, you know, how you actually get an animal uh, hopefully from oiled to release.
2: Sure. Um, I might also say that there are a lot of other contaminants out there in the world not even just oiling. Like in 2015, we had a mystery goo spill in San Francisco Bay. Right. That, and that, yeah. that stuff was weird. It was like epoxy or something. We never did figure out what it was. Um, right. Anyway, the uh, process is kind of the same. So there are huge differences in species. So one of the interesting things, East Coast versus West Coast. So we don't very often see oiled ducks and geese. Like, I mean, like mallards and Canada geese not what we ever see here. It's like on the East Coast, I know our colleagues at Tri-State see a lot of mallards, Canada geese, and um, all the various species of turtles out there. Um, So there's big differences in species with where you are. Um, uh, So in general though, um, you know, I'm a bird person. The most recent past spill that Oil Love of Care Network dealt with was mostly frogs. They had lots of oiled frogs. A different, well. different spill up in Santa Barbara, a couple like in August. Um, anyway, birds are our thing, um, so we deal with aquatic birds. Um, so when a bird is oiled, unfortunately, unless it is completely disabled, it's sometimes hard to catch. So one of the one of the issues with this current spill is that some of the birds are uh, still flighted, and once they're flighted, um, they can stay out there and be oiled for a while one of the things that came out of my master's project was looking at common murres that get oiled off of California um, and uh, the birds that were 100% covered in oil versus birds that had a small amount of oil on them. Um, the heavily oiled ones actually did better and they were in better shape when they stranded because those are animals that are going to drown if they don't get out of the water right away. And they're, immobile and they can't run away from you very effectively so those animals get rescued quickly whereas animals that might have a smaller amount on them um, having it screw up their waterproofing and making them do nothing but like obsessively preen and try to fix themselves over and over and over again not eating cold ocean etc those animals come in in terrible condition
0: Wow. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It
2: seems counterintuitive, but it's. Totally yeah,
0: it was made... counterintuitive. <laughs> and
2: that's not the case all the time. So, one of the issues that came up with Deepwater Horizon is because the, the animals are so warm out there. It's kind of like they're being in an incubator. So, so some of the animals that were oiled um, were staying alive and not on the verge of death, even though they are heavily contaminated. Um, so, the colder the water, the quicker you need to rescue the animals or they're going to go downhill real quick, like fat to emaciated in like three days or less. So, it, <laughs> Not a lot of so time. it's yeah. imperative that they get rescued quickly when there's a cold ocean involved. Um, so anyway, they get rescued. Um, these days in California, what happens is they get um, uh, generally stabilized in the field. So So the network sets up field stabilization facilities where those animals can get, you know, thermal support, and fluids, and you know, get the oil out of their eyes and their mouth um, and start getting rehydrated, renourished, that sort of thing um, before they get transported to a primary care facility. Once they're at a primary care facility, they have uh, evidence collected, photographs taken, feather samples, oil samples. They're always doing chemical fingerprinting of the oil, trying to match it to what the problem is. Um, and then um, the animal gets uh, shunted into pre-wash stabilization, where they are, um, you know, they have full physical exams, looking for problems. Some of these, many of these products, cause terrible burns. Um, they're surprisingly caustic. So, so even if you're walking on the beach in Santa Barbara and you get tar on your feet, it doesn't seem so bad. But when those products are really fresh, before they get weathered, they're quite caustic and burn tissue really quite severely. Um, so, we we get them started getting re-nourished, rehydrated. Um, they get a little blood work, trying to get an idea of what their general health is, um, any physical problems identified, all that sort of stuff. And then, once they're judged to be stable, um, usually after 24, 48, 72 hours, depending on species and how bad off they are, then they will um, get evaluated for being strong enough to do wash. And then they get washed dried, and then they can start on the road to getting uh, waterproof plumage again. So these things will happen a little differently for each species. Of course, the frogs apparently got washed really quickly. <laughs> you don't have to worry so much about making them waterproof again. Um, but you know, they have very sensitive skin, so it's a little different issue with every species. Uh, but for our for our seabirds, we have to make their plumage perfect before they can get released again. And um, some species, if they have burns, are gonna need to stay in care longer. And um, Yeah, it kind of de- depends on the the needs of the animals. Each species has their own p- particular problems that they usually get when they're down and out.
1: <laughs> right, and um, some of the uh, water birds being much more challenging to care for, needing uh, pool facilities versus, yeah. you know, say, some of the shorebirds um, needing um, you know they 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 must have much different um, housing needs
2: yeah uh shorebirds you would really think they'd be super delicate little creatures but even during the mystery goose pill we had 10 tiny little western sandpipers and a couple dunlin come in covered in this gluey horrible stuff you know we didn't know whether we were going to be able to get it off uh, but man these little tiny little shorebirds once you get them toasty warm and offer them a giant platter of delicious, tasty invertebrates. They fatten up like no tomorrow. It is amazing how resilient they are. Even when they're like razor emaciated.
0: Wow. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. I
1: cool. <laughs> love
2: shorebirds.
1: Yeah, they're so rugged and, yeah. and cute. And,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Pelicans are my other favorite. They're just super resilient birds that can take a lot of damage and come back and be awesome.
0: So are some of the less resilient ones, things like your, your diving, your diving. Like loons are probably the worst Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) loons. uh, Western grebes can be really tough. They tend to get a lot of burns around their hawks and um, develop a lot of um, foot problems um, that can be tough to deal with. Um, They're also kind of like a, kind of like a reptile sometime. Like, like when they get down to being super emaciated, little feathered skeletons, um, they'll end up with toe tip necrosis, probably just from poor perfusion in their feet, but they can end up with some foot problems along those lines as well, where the tissue on the tips of everything just dies and falls off essentially. But, you know, it's only really a problem if it's crossing the bone, but it's still, it's it's a loss of um, swimming surface area because they're foot swimmers.
0: Hmm. So where, um, where are we at right now um, in terms of numbers of Birds that have been recovered, and do you have that's to put you on the spot with exact numbers, but what's the well? What's the... I
2: was just checking. Um, uh, All-Life, well, the Care Network has a page on that, um, with that they're updating every day. So we're all still only up to 28 live birds captured and 45 dead. So it's been amazingly low. I think if the spill had been an, a month later, um, things would have been rather different.
1: Yeah, you're in that perfect window of post-breeding and and sort of right before a lot of the wintering.
2: Yep, exactly. So November and December are much bigger um, wintering arrival months. You know, we usually start to see grebes arrive kind of at the end of September into October, and then uh, westerns right around that time as well. Yeah, so it's kind of surprising. You know, we had a a spill here in... um, I think it was more like December, January. Can't quite remember. In two thousand and five, where we had fourteen hundred Western grebes and Clarks grebes, mostly grebes, come in. Um, you know, similar area, slightly north of it was Ventura County rather than Orange County, but it was, you know, a huge grebe event. <laughs> so we were a little afraid it, this was going to turn into that. Thankfully, it has not. It's been mostly grebes, snowy plovers, um, for this particular event,
1: and, and the, the snowy. Plovers are are a federally listed species, so it really counts to try and do as much to help them as possible. Oh, you bet.
2: Yeah, and there's so little um, natural beach in Southern California for them to breed on. Um, They, um, yeah, there's there's certain areas where they can easily be seen down here, but uh, um, Huntington State Beach is one of those areas. So it's fabulous that they actually were able to catch them. And... um, I think most of those were birds were still flighted, um, as I recall. So it's very challenging to catch tiny little shorebirds that don't want to be caught. <laughs> <I> can imagine. <laughs>
1: yeah, they run pretty quick.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they seem like they'd be very, uh, very wily. Yes. I've done some capture with harlequin ducks um, on the breeding grounds. Where you string a, a mist net right across the, you know, these perfect little spots of a creek. Um, and then you push the ducks sort of up and down the river and they'll just they'll if you have the net in the right spot, they'll just fly right into that. Otherwise you'd never have a chance yeah. of getting it. So I'd imagine it's somewhat of a similar process. Yeah.
2: So it can be a real challenge to catch animals that are lightly um lightly oiled until they're really debilitated.
1: Yeah. Wild animals typically don't want to be caught.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was also a, an issue down here. You know, Orange County and L.A. County, for that matter, don't have a lot of natural beaches, people all over the beaches. And, you know, there certainly have been circumstances where somebody might be trying to, a bird is trying to beach itself because it needs to get out of the water. But then there's, you know, kids and dogs and whatever on the beach. It's like, okay, I'll just take my chances on the water. <laughs> I won't beach myself. So so one of the things that public messaging was trying to do is get people to stay off the beach because you're scaring them in. Let them come out and rest so we can rescue them.
0: Right, right.
1: Right, and always yeah. contact mm-hmm. the experts instead of trying to be a hero and rescue the wildlife yourself.
2: Or just going about your business, playing in the water or whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Letting your dog chase the uh, <laughs> the birds, right?
2: Letting your children play in the oily water. Like, really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds yeah. like maybe people need a little bit of uh, education and rescuing as yeah. much as the, the wildlife.
2: Yes, to be. sadly so. Some things you'd think would be common knowledge aren't. So public education. Yes.
0: So your network of volunteers are are a lot of these folks, um, sort of members of the general public that have gone through additional training, or are these primarily vets and biologists, or what does that network of volunteers actually look like? Mostly
2: they are um, average lay people. Um, we have, you know, we have, let's see, each of our centers has a physician who's a volunteer. Um, we have some college professors. We've got some bunch of retired nurses. We have school teachers and anybody from any blocks of walk of life um, who likes the work can get involved.
0: That's That's awesome.
2: And then, and then when they're in order to be immediately deployable during an oil spill, there's a certain set of trainings that they need to have under their belt and stay current with.
1: And is that training that that you uh, provide or the Oiled Wildlife Care Network or or other entities?
2: Both. So Oiled Wildlife Care Network provides a whole bunch of trainings and get-togethers and uh, keeping people involved, type of stuff, but they the volunteers have to be affiliated with one of the member organizations, so they have to do whatever their member organization also requires.
0: I vaguely remember looking into it years ago over here on the East Coast, and I remember there was some sort of training. I want to say it was called like Haswapper or had some crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that. Is, is that?
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a 24-hour training on hazardous materials called Hazwhopper. Um and then you have to do an eight hour refresher every year <laughs> so it, it, you know. and it, if it doesn't happen for a while a lot of people you know let it lapse and then you mm. might have to take 24 hour again and then when it still happens you aren't qualified so, so there's issues like that so we have to like keep on people to keep their qualifications current.
0: gotcha yeah and so anyone who is part of the volunteer network would have to have that training as yes, well yes
2: exactly So that's the way it is in California. So we also respond to spills in different areas. So for example, we also have a turnkey facility up in Anchorage. If there's a spill up in Alaska, we have people there pretty fast. And one of our staff lives there. Um, And then Oregon and Washington as well. So we've responded to spills all up and down the West Coast. And I maintain vet licenses in those states just in case. And uh, yeah, wow. Yeah. that's a lot <laughs> so, so in those states we would be working with their natural resource management departments and the the spiller whoever they are the spiller the spiller <laughs> the wow. responsible yeah.
1: party yeah, yeah exactly more appropriate yes, the rp <laughs> yes.
2: yeah yeah probably the biggest thing i end up involved in is um fishing gear injuries and pelicans and brown pelicans get it really bad here
1: yeah it's always tough uh, you know to see and have worked with loons tangled in fishing tackle and fishing line and unless it's wrapped around you know one of their feet their legs and you're you're just not going to catch them until it's too late right Yep. so it's so heart-wrenching
2: yep yeah i'm actually in the middle of writing a paper on um uh, post-release survival of brown pelicans based on what their medical problems were in care since we have yep. fabulous post-release data on them
0: oh nice oh yeah. uh, can you give us just like a teaser oh well
2: let's see okay here's one so yeah, right after they were delisted in 2009 late 2009 california brown pelicans got delisted endangered species yeah. act right so and then they promptly had a crash that winter. There were dead, dying adult pelicans all over all the riprap, landing in the port, et cetera. They were just having a horrible winter with death everywhere. So we had more than 600 birds come in over the course of about four months. Wow. Yeah. So we were, we were packed with pelicans and they were all breeding age adults.
1: Yeah. And pelicans are big. These are, yeah.
2: Them. Yeah. Yes. A lot
0: of bird mass.
2: To oh my to God. That's a lot of fish. So so about 100 of the birds had big, horrible wounds because they were fighting with California sea lions for fish waste at some of the fish uh, commercial fish docks. There's a place in Monterey and one here in San Pedro that um, that's a problem regularly. Um, But um, so we managed to release about um, 60% of those birds that came in. They were horribly not waterproof they're emaciated some of them had pack cell volumes of like 10 percent. really anemic essentially um wow, that's
0: fantastic that's yeah super high-
2: yeah so that's when we started doing our blue band and pelican program where we put great big blue leg bands on them so that people can call um, report on our website sightings of those birds and we have just had fabulous resites of those animals and the uh, the length of time that those animals that got a second chance by getting renourished from starving to death <laughs> even though it was you know nobody even knows why the event happened um we've just had fabulous survival like we're those some some of those birds are still alive being seen regularly you know wow. 11 years later <laughs> 12 years later oh that's awesome when if you look at birds of the world you know with all the data on brown pelicans like only two percent of those birds are supposed to be Survive over 10 years. So those were already adult birds that were at least three during the event. And then, you know, it's been 12 years. So a big chunk of those animals have done really well. Wow. So, yeah. so anyway, we, we have a lot of that information in our database.
0: So, trying to get some of it published. Ah, super cool. Yeah. I'm excited to see that. Yeah. That's, it's such that's awesome data that you're able to get. Yeah.
1: yeah. So many yeah. times when you have. Uh, any animal in rehab and birds especially you know you often don't know what the fate of those animals are whether you even if you can have can band them and color mark them even then just getting that return data is so critical to understanding was your was your procedure was your process you know good for that animal and Mm -hmm. yeah and just learning i mean so many times you wonder how long might it take, especially if it was something traumatic, how long might it take for that individual to re-enter a breeding population and, and get back to a sort of more normal life and let alone does it survive or not?
2: Right. We've actually had so far the longest uh, interval between release and first residing. <laughs> it's been 10 years. So we've had, oh, I think it's 11 years. There were two birds that had a nine year interval. And we had one recently that was eleven years before he was ever seen once after release, and his blue band still looks lovely. <laughs> so so
1: anyway, this brightest blue band out there—it's <laughs> still
2: in pristine mint condition.
1: Yeah, that's some, some good bling that bird's got.
2: Yeah, I also have a regular blue-banded pelican spotter who has a list that he takes on his kayak with him to. Um, he has little notes on the cases for which ones I want close-ups of their feet. <laughs> so it's, you know, I don't know what toes I could get away with amputating on a pelican. Right. I have no idea. Yeah. They're coming with fish hooks and horrible infections and stuff. And Anyway, so he's, he catches these fabulous photos of these animals, as wounds years later for me. It's beautiful feedback.
0: That's awesome case follow-up right yes.
2: there. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs>
0: It's better than most of my patients, well, right, <laughs> like, like I took off three of his toes. was that too many? I don't know, yeah, I'm sitting on a
2: gold mine of banding data, and it's just hard to find time to write all these papers
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh and and more data keeps rolling in every year I'm sure. <laughs> it's uh it's a vicious cycle in science,
2: even my my Pelican paper I'm trying to finish because people keep seeing these animals. <laughs> <I was like, laughs> It's like I'm this data set is closed. Like, oh, but there's one more year. One more year. Yeah. More year. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah.
0: Is there anything people listening can do to support the efforts of IBR or anywhere that you want to direct listeners to to just help or, or support any of your work in any way that they can?
2: Well, the kind of the way it works is that when there's a responsible party, which I guess might be a little up in the air, but for this one. what's the deal with the anchor these days um anyway so if there's a responsible party typically they're on the hook for paying for the response Uh, but if there isn't a responsible party um sometimes the um there's a fund for mystery spills that can get engaged that can help pay for things but the thing that that all the wildlife centers in the country including us deal with is Maintaining our skills and facility and the ability to do the work on a day to day basis, operational costs, you know, are tough, you know, and, and in order to have people have really excellent skills, it is imperative that they they do things for years, you know, like we we don't really consider a, a new employee well trained until they've been around for three to five years. So it's, it's not really a field that is amenable to the job jumping around. <laughs> Very much, you know, it's very it's really specialized. It's not even something you really go to college to do. um, so so all of the nonprofits that deal with wildlife health in in the world, frankly, not even just the u s, um always need financial support. You know, we certainly do you know it's only during an event like this where we actually have any sort of um, specifically earmarked funding that that does come in. Um, but you know, that's not paying my salary. I'm not even activated. <laughs> so, so there's there's you know a lot of organizations that really need the support of people who are um, supportive of the work we do.
1: Yeah, and could that be through um, donations or, or do you have an annual membership or anything like that that we could point our listeners um, to? Yeah,
2: you could check out our website, internationalbirdrescue.org, and um, we, we have all sorts of, we have swag, <laughs> we have calendars, we have, um, you know, regular old donations. We have a couple of interesting donation programs on there. Um, there's all sorts of stuff on our donation page um yeah
0: just check it out i want some swag yeah yeah we have some nice swag (laughs) and i will say too you
1: have an excellent um social media presence um i've been following you for a good long while and love the content and it's always um so fascinating to see the work that you do and it's always so rewarding to hear about um the success success stories and and hear about the releases, um, and also just really informative to hear about the things that you know don't go well, and and just see a behind the scenes look at the process, and and yeah, just get to see some of these birds up close in the pools and and elsewhere. And yes, bravo.
2: Yeah, I try to write up some blogs of some of the more interesting medical cases um, you might see on our blog page. Some of the, a bunch of those are written by me. <laughs> want to see the gross wound cases? Those are the ones that I write. Yeah.
1: Public Mm -hmm. awareness and education is, is so critical. Yeah. I, you know, IBR, you guys are fighting the good fight and everything that we can do and and others can do to, to raise awareness for, for the work that you're doing and and support the work and that you're doing and others. And yeah, the whole oil wildlife care network on, on the West coast, there's really just so valuable to wildlife yeah, hopefully we can raise a lot of good, um, awareness, uh, of, of you all and, uh, keep fighting the good fight. Um, and thank Excellent. you again yeah. for the time and <laughs> for, the, for your work.
2: Yeah. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of the wildlife health connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org podcast.